this is Cinema Roundtable. My name is Stefan, and I'm here with my usual beau. Hello, Stefan. And we would like to introduce you to our new co-host, Erica. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Now, uh, man, it's been so long since we've been here together recording for Cinema Roundtable. Um, hopefully I don't have to tell you, but if you're listening to this way, way after our recording date, um, there's this little thing called uh, COVID-19, and it ravaged the earth and killed hundreds of thousands of people. That's not the plot of one of our movies. That really happened. So uh, as, a, as a precaution to keep ourselves from being a part of that statistic, we decided uh, to not go to the movies for a long time, uh, even after, you know, some of those guidelines were lifted. We sort of uh, played it a little bit more safe than maybe some other people might have. So uh, the point is we're here now. The levels in our city are um, mostly acceptable. Uh, we'll continue to monitor that as different variants of the virus continue to ravage our world. But um, for now, we're excited to be joining you to talk about some movies. There are some things that are going to be changing as we're coming back here at Cinema Roundtable. Uh, one, of course, is a new co-host, Erica, but we will also be joined by more new co-hosts as the months go on. And we will rotate out so that you won't be hearing the same voices every single episode um, we still expect it to be a monthly podcast, um, but you, you will be hearing from three to four each episode from a pool of seven to eight, maybe even more as time goes on. So uh, look forward to next month. We'll have another new co-host joining us, um, and, and we're really excited to be introducing you guys to new people as Cinema Roundtable changes and evolves. It's going to be uh, really exciting. So I hope that you'll stick around. But today... We are here for an episode of Cinema Roundtable. Our feature film on this episode is The Forever Purge, and we will be talking about that later on in the episode, uh, spoiler-free eventually. But uh, for now, as we begin, like we usually do, we want to talk about some of the other movies that we've seen recently. These uh, discussions will be spoiler-free Gen generally. You know, there, there are some maybe small plot points that... that are like a little bit of a early movie twist. Yeah, if you like to go in knowing nothing, uh, we'll spoil basic plot uh, details, but uh, nothing you wouldn't be able to gain from the trailer. Right, yeah. right, exactly. That's that's a good way to put it, Bo. So, um, so to sort of ease our new friend in, um, I'm going to throw it uh, to myself to start with one of the movies that I've seen recently. Um, and the first movie that I want to talk about, since we're we're focusing on horror today, I'm going to focus on Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Now, by the time you're listening to this podcast, um, the second part will already be out. Uh, and there's nothing I can do about that. I haven't <laughs> been able to watch it because it came out today as we're recording it. But uh, I want to talk about Fear Street Part 1. Uh, and it's called Part One because it's the first in a trilogy of films that are coming out uh, one week at a time, which is really, really fascinating to see. I've never really seen anything like that done before. Um, and these are Netflix movies based on R.L. Stein novels. 
Uh, and the premise is that there is this town called Shady Side. It seems kind of like your average, not quite a city-sized town that everyone seems to want to get out of, you know, in their teenage angst. Um, for centuries, the city has sort of been plagued by like multiple strings of violent murders, and sort of the local urban legend attributes this to uh, a witch that was hanged back in nineteen or sorry, sixteen sixty-six, and you're going to want to remember that year. Um, but a new killing spree at the mall is the latest in these strings of like violent murders and sort of revive speculation about the local legend in some of our characters. So the story mainly follows a group of teenagers, um, namely Dina, her brother, Josh, whom sort of lends his, uh, legend expertise to move the plot along in this movie. Uh, and a couple of Dina's friends, as well as her. I don't want to quite say like closeted ex-girlfriend Sam, but um, part of the plot focuses on on the fact that she used to date Dina and is now uh, dating a man from another town. So the first point of conflict sort of comes from that post-breakup between Sam and Dina um, because Sam has moved towns and schools and is sort of like that one step closer to, to getting out Um, And this pits the two against each other in sort of like a school rivalry conflict that escalates, resulting in a car wreck. And this is just sort of the first domino that puts these teenagers next in line for the legacy of the town's uh, violent deaths. So I'm really looking forward to uh, watching part two, probably even tonight, uh, after my wife and and kid go to bed and... um, so far, the trailer looks pretty good. It features uh, the second Stranger Things star of this franchise. You get to see Maya Hawk in the first one for just a few minutes. Um, and the uh, the second one seems to star Sadie Sink. So looking forward to that. I think it'll be a good time. I was very, I was very impressed. It'll, you know, of course, a lot of teenage angst sort of scenes, you know, can can be a bit of a slog to get through, but... Uh, all in all, I was very happy with the viewing experience. So I like that you brought up that these are based on R.L. Stein stories, because when I looked at the poster for this, um, the way it was designed and especially the text, it very much reminded me of like Goosebumps mm. books, like how those look. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's like very much an homage to R.L. Stein. It looks like they carried that style into um, you know the marketing and the the posters for this. Yeah, and I didn't even know that until just this morning when I was I was pulling up some notes for for the recording today. So that was uh, that was interesting to learn. I was not expecting that. Um, okay, Erica, you gave us two movies that you have seen recently. So I'm going to throw it to you next. Um, I'm going to kind of I'm going to kind of sandwich this. So I'm going to mm-hmm. start with the one that's not horror. I'm going to ask you to talk to us a little bit about Cruella. Okay, well, um, it definitely continues the semi-recent Disney trend of doing movies about villains in which the villains are sympathetic or that uh, showing that they were misunderstood in some way. So it's a revisionist telling uh, or prequel, technically, to 101 Dalmatians. And you have this young girl who is always kind of eccentric and a little too bright for her age. Um, struggling to make it in the world of fashion. Um, And then, well, I can't give away that spoiler. That's a big one. (laughs) 
But okay, if we're covering early movie spoilers, we find out why she hates Dalmatians mm-hmm. so much. Dalmatians killed her mother. And then later on, they reveal exactly who the evil character was who sicked Dalmatians on her mother. Okay, cool. Well, what did you uh, what did you think of the movie overall? I thought it was like a fun summer popcorn movie. Um, probably not one I would revisit repeatedly, but um, it was a lot of fun. After a friend and I went to a cabaret dance class and went back to her home theater for wine, so it's kind of the perfect. Uh, perfect movie out with friends. Okay. And and how would you compare this to, to some of the other recent Disney live action films? I feel like um, as far as the villain stories, they really redeemed themselves after the travesty that was Maleficent 2. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, man, that hurt me on a deep level. I enjoyed the first film and then the sequel was just like so wrong on so many levels in my opinion. Um, I feel like with Cruella, they um, corrected some errors that they had made. Okay. Um, cool. Bo, did you you saw that one as well, right? I did. Yes. Um, I really thought so. Your question about how does it compare to the other live action films? I thought this one was just really dripping with style mm-hmm. and really evoked the time periods it was trying to show. Um, there are tons of needle drops in this film. Lots of um, music that they got the rights to play. Anytime they need to do a montage or a stylized sequence, they they do another really popular song. I mean, if you look up the soundtrack to this film, it's just popular song after Mm -hmm. popular song. A lot of them um, very much from the time period. Um, A lot of them very much influenced by this kind of London punk rock feel that a lot of this film has. Um, so I thought it felt very much uh, unique. I liked the backstory for Cruella as a child and then going into um, her time as an adult. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of really nice time when she's a kid. And the the child actress who plays her as a kid is really good. She is. Mm-hmm. And this is like her only film she's done, too. She's a relative newcomer, but I could see her being someone who takes over Hollywood. She's really good and promising. Um I thought a lot of the supporting cast was really fun to watch as well. Um, Paul Walter Hauser is in this movie as like kind of comic relief, and I really enjoyed a lot of his sections too. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it's, it was very much worth watching, especially in the theater. Um, I know it's one of those Disney films that um, they're doing like the premiere access with on Disney Plus, so mm-hmm. you can pay you know like the thirty dollars at home to stream this. Um, but I think it's worth seeing at the theater. Um, and I know it will be free, uh, well, you know, in, in quotations, free for Disney Plus subscribers starting in September. So you can wait a little bit, too. Okay. I don't think that's that's too terrible of a wait. Perfectly reasonable in my mind. Um, okay, Bo, we have one film from you today, but you're going to be sharing thoughts on a lot of them. So I'm going to throw it to you now. You saw an HBO Max film just last night, right, called No Sudden Move. I did, yes. So this is Steven Soderbergh's new film. Um, Steven Soderbergh, of course, uh, well-known for lots of popular movies, the the Oceans uh, series, you know, Oceans 11, um, Logan Lucky, um, his film Contagion, which a lot of people visited this past year with the pandemic going on, um, and also a lot of these kind of smaller experimental films, um, some of them in the horror genre, like... A few years ago, he did the film Unsane. 
He directed Magic Mike. So he has a, a, a very nice catalog of films. And No Sudden Move is uh, basically a crime drama starring a lot of very talented people. Don Cheadle, uh, Benicio Del Toro, David Harbour, uh, John Hamm, Brendan Fraser is in this film. <laughs> um, Stefan and I have talked a lot off air about Brendan Fraser and how The Mummy is just a film that seems to show up everywhere. Uh, you know, Recently, like 20-some yeah. years later after it was really popular and we don't know why. It's like this massive coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just a kind of a personal observance of ours. Um, but Brendan Fraser is in this film, and I haven't seen him in a new movie in a long time. Basically what this is is a, a pretty straightforward meat-and-potatoes crime thriller um, that is pretty much a slow burn for a lot of it. But it's filled with twists and turns, especially at the end. There's actually a surprise cast member that shows up in the last maybe 20 or 25 minutes that I didn't know was in this movie. And he is only in the last 25 minutes or so. That was a surprise to see that actor. I won't spoil who it is. Um, and the story here is that some uh, you know, gangsters, some uh, crime guys are hired to do this team job and it goes south and they have to kind of figure out the mysteries behind why it went south and what their real uh, purpose is or the purpose behind the people who hired them, what that's all about. And so they end up turning the tables on uh, some of the people that they work for. And from there, all of it is unexpected. Tons of uh, twists and turns, like I said. Um, I think it's very much worth watching. It's shot very interestingly. Uh, Soderbergh likes to choose interesting cameras and lenses for his films. Um, his film a few years ago, High Flying Bird, I think he shot all on a cell phone, for instance. Hmm. Um, he doesn't do that here, but he, the lenses he uses are very kind of strange and odd looking and frame very wide shots into his really tight frame. So yeah, I, I, I found it worth watching simply for you know the mystery at hand and what's going on and um, really enjoyed the cast. Awesome. Okay, well, yes, you can catch that in the max as we have oh. not had a chance to say yet, but uh, you can catch that in the max uh, at home. Stefan used to say, like, in uh, in the net yeah, for Netflix. Yeah, catch it in the net, catch, catch it, in the, it net. in the red at Redbox if it was just, like, a standard rental. Yep. Um, catch it in, the, in its prime yeah. if it was on Amazon Prime. <laughs> I don't know if that's one that I actually said, but it's way better <laughs> than whatever I had before. All right, so we're going to go... Back to one of mine, because the last movie that we saw recently is also a horror movie. So we're going to keep that theme running. But before we do that, we're going to talk about one that's a little bit of a cheat for Cinema Roundtable, and that is Bo Burnham's Inside. Um, and so this is a, a Netflix special. It's sort of, it's it's billed as a comedy special. For those of you familiar, Bo Burnham is a stand-up comic um, and while it certainly is a comedy special, uh, it, it really is also a lot more than that. Um, this special is written, produced, edited, and created pretty much entirely by Bo Burnham. Um, Burnham's a, a comedian I had heard of in the past, but only sort of passively enjoyed when friends would like share links with me of, of short clips. I never actually like sat down and watched a lot of his stuff. Um, but what I, because of that, I, I failed to learn that he sort of quit performing stand-up comedy for something like five years. And that's, that's something we learn 
uh, throughout the special. Um, and so, so inside is sort of like, as I understand it, like the backup plan to returning to comedy. We learn, you know, throughout the special that he, uh, he had been ready to return to stand up comic, uh, in, in the beginning of 2020, but then this, uh, COVID-19 thing happened and, uh, that became a little bit of an impossibility. So in my mind, this is a little bit of like a backup plan to, to that return to stand-up comedy. Um, so this special, it has all the music and all the really cool lighting effects that you uh, would expect to see from Bo Burnham stand-ups, as I learned recently. Um, however, giving the nature of a, being a produced special, he takes advantage of editing to do some really like interesting things with both music, comedy, and commentary, uh, as well as visuals. And then that, that makes, um, that makes the special really impactful. But in addition to, to all of that really cool production and all of the great music, um, the, the topics he touches on are really what I think makes this the standout that it has been. Um, and, and he ends up touching on topics that include socioeconomic state of the world, the helplessness of living and like late stage capitalism and the resulting depression and even, you know, significant thoughts of suicide. Um, so it, it's really stood out with a lot of people that struggled through the pandemic, but also with people that struggled with those kinds of burdens, regardless of the pandemic. So, uh, I think it's, it's really great for, for a timely sense. It's really great for people that maybe feel isolated, but it's also just, really great in terms of music and visuals and, and editing. And, um, it's, it's a really fascinating watch and I, I hope that you'll, uh, give it a shot. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, dualities with this special because a lot of it feels, um, a lot of it is so funny and mm -hmm. smartly written. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of wit in, in his music and poetry and stuff. Sometimes but it's downright goofy. Sometimes it's, it is. Yeah. Yes. And you, you can't help but laugh. And then it is, at the same time, almost like watching a fever dream. You know, it is it is nightmarish and conjures all the bad things about the past year so eloquently. Um, I, too, really enjoyed it. I think there are songs that um, could almost be placed in any of his specials. Like, they don't feel particular to this last year, uh, but other songs that really are particular to, you know, being isolated, the lockdown, mm -hmm. what humanity went through together and there's one song that we actually played on kzum just you know earlier this week uh that funny feeling mm. and i think that song really does a great job of showing you know making you think about how messed up the world is how lighthearted and funny and genuinely interesting some things can be while at the same time a lot of messed up stuff is going on that we pretend isn't there or we all imagine how things are going to end and there's nothing we can really do about it. The hopelessness, all of those feelings, um, happened with me for that song. And, yep. uh, yeah, I, I, that's one I've been revisiting quite a bit. Yeah. I, I mentioned to Bo off air, um, recently that a lot of like YouTubers I've been following or other in internet content creators have been like taking that song and writing their own verses to it, just sort of like tying it into, um, how, how their life is affected by not only the pandemic, but just like general mental health struggles. So, 
uh, obviously making a huge impact with a lot of a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Okay, that's uh, Bo Burnham's Inside. You can catch that in the net. And so we're going to close out this section of uh, spoiler-free films that we've seen recently with A Quiet Place Part 2. This is one that Erica's going to cover. Uh, so Erica, take it away. Okay, uh, well, A Quiet Place Part 2 is a direct sequel to the first film, although they do add some flashback scenes that show exactly what happened during the initial alien invasion and uh, the chaos that happened and um, a lot of death scenes of some of the supporting uh, characters. This is like a lot better than the typical horror movie sequel, honestly. Like the first one, there's not really any social uh, commentary like the films that we're about to discuss. But it's still, it's very well done, very suspenseful. Um, I was just on the edge of my seat a lot of the time, even knowing a, a couple particular crises that the characters were going to experience. Um, there is some kind of silly teen angst. That's the only complaint about it that I have. Um, the daughter who survives the first film makes a very a stupid decision <laughs> that creates one of the crises. That's all I'll say about it. Um, but it is a, it's a very good um, summer action sci-fi horror movie if you like that kind of thing. I remember seeing the first one um, a few years ago. I haven't seen part two yet. Mm -hmm. I intend to. I think it's a, it sounds like a movie that would be great to see in the theater, you know, because I remember really enjoying the experience of seeing that first film and you know, not really knowing a lot of the other people in the theater other than the person I went with, it was it was nevertheless a, a packed mm -hmm. uh, theater. And being so engrossed with what was happening and just the lack of sound, anytime someone in the theater crunched their popcorn or, <laughs> uh, you know, squeaked their chair as they shifted, I, I was so immersed that I was thinking like, no, don't make any sound. <laughs> so I'm curious if that, if you had any of that kind of reaction while watching this film where you like, you know, kind of absorbed in that way. Yeah, I, I did have that experience as well with both films. <laughs> I guess another minor quibble I have, although I mean it's done effectively, every uh, post-apocalyptic film I've seen always has some group of humans that turn feral mm. where they kill other people for fun or they become cannibals, and there is a bit of that in this film. Is is there like reasons for it? Like is it... They never give reasons, just okay. these people decided to become cannibals one day or um, rapists or just spree killers, whatever. Okay. Um, fortunately, you know, not the majority of the survivors they depict do not go down that route, but it almost seems like it was this obligatory thing they had to do. Mm -hmm. I get you. Okay. Is the, is the franchise stronger for having this or was it better as a standalone? I've seen Krasinski say that he never initially planned to do a sequel um, but I, for whatever reason, decided to do it anyways. So I, I guess my question is, do you feel it? the first one stands better on its own, or is the sequel made it stronger? Well, the original does stand just fine on its own, um, but the sequel does not detract from it in any way. Okay. Um, I'd say it's it's pretty much on par with the original. Okay. And do, uh, are, Should we expect to see another one? Yeah, that I don't know. I mean, they definitely left it in a place where they could do another one, but I'm kind of hoping that they don't because mm -hmm. I feel at this point it would be a law of diminishing returns sort of thing. Okay. From what I've seen in trailers and things, 
it seems like part two covers a lot of ground and distance, that there's a lot of traveling, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the first film, I remember it feeling more isolated. Is that true? It is true. Okay. So there, it it kind of reminded me in a way of like the video, I don't know if you're familiar with the video game, The Last of Us, but that is kind of like a a post-apocalyptic game where essentially a zombie-like virus has taken over the world. And in that game, you play as a couple of characters who are traveling a great long distance and sections of the game take place in, you know, very disparate places. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it seems like I, I'm just seeing the parallels here between, you know, those two kinds of post-apocalyptic stories, which is interesting. All right. Well, I think we're at a good place in our recording time to move on to our feature film. We will at first talk about it spoiler free. And I think actually this time we're going to allow our new friend Erica to give us a, a run through of the franchise so far. Uh, Cause this is Bo and I's first uh, foray. Yeah. Yes. That's the word I was looking for. Exactly. Foray into the purge series. So we'll actually start with uh, a brief history of the purge franchise before we start talking about the Forever Purge, spoiler-free at first, and then we will move into spoilers. So, Erica, I'm going to hand it over to you. Excellent. So, um, I have seen all of these films in the theater. I have not seen the USA TV series, so I can't comment on that, but what I've heard is intriguing. Um, (laughs) Basically, it sounds like the TV show talks about what happens during the rest of the year and all of the... Uh, the cleanup and the fallout and financial issues that happen because of the purge. Interesting, adding just kind of world-building context. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it is something I'm going to have to watch at some point, but I didn't have time before this episode. Um, the original film was basically a home invasion movie. Um, it had this great concept of this is at, at some point in the future of this country that there's this one day of the year where there's a 12-hour time period where all crime, including murder, is legal, and there's, like, no emergency services, no police to intervene in that. Um, So people can literally do whatever they want. Um, The main characters are an upper-middle-class white family. Um, the, The father sells home security. It's basically purge security to other upper middle class and wealthy people in their gated community. So they go into lockdown. They think they're safe. Um, Their young son decides to help a stranger who's screaming for help. And the stranger is um, a homeless black man who's being hunted by some of the rich kids in the neighborhood. And uh, they, they figure out the guy's hiding in their home, and they, d- they end up invading the home. So the, the home security system doesn't even work all that well. They literally tear the barriers off the walls and doors and come in anyway because they want this homeless guy no matter what. Um, so it's, there's a lot of cat and mouse stuff in the first film. Um, I feel like there was definitely some potential that wasn't explored until the second film, which was uh, The Purge Anarchy. That's actually my favorite film in the series. It has a much larger scope. They show what goes on in inner city areas, what happens to people who are working class, have lower socioeconomic status, and how they have to try to survive. And it's a lot more difficult because they can't afford uh, these upscale home security systems, and some of them don't have homes. So in the second one, you have a group of strangers who end up meeting each other, and they're fighting for survival in um, an inner city area 
um, another interesting thing that's explored in the sequel is that the uh, the government called the New Founding Fathers aren't really implementing the purge to help people experience some kind of catharsis or to get rid of negative emer- uh, emotions by acting out this one time a year. They really want to eliminate poor people. Um, so they actually send these undercover undercover government squads into housing projects to just massacre all of the the poor people living there <laughs> and then that's uh, they just make it look like oh these were people purging but it's it's completely uh, um, a, a government uh, agenda um, also gets into a little bit of health care issues that some of the working class families can't afford medicine so their elderly relatives sell themselves to rich families to be murdered and then that pays for Family expenses. There's this whole warped. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's like <laughs> neoliberalism on crack. So you see a lot of things that are um, you, that you can witness right now in American culture, but they've amplified it, you know, like a hundredfold. I think that's why the the series can be very effective okay. at times. Is that there are these elements that are very relatable and um, relevant to uh, present day issues. Third film was election year. You get more of a, um, a look inside how the government works, and it's about a senator who's challenging the new founding fathers and wants to ban the purge. That film, for me, it's maybe my least favorite just because some of the acting is very questionable. Like, I would almost say porn-level acting. <laughs> um, it, it Sometimes it, it seems like it descends into pure camp, especially when they show this... Um, the new founding fathers having a purge mass, which is uh, this sacrilegious take on a Catholic mass. But instead of having the body and blood of Christ, they're going to rip some poor victim apart. And Jeez. yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's like it has some good ideas. There's some really interesting moments, and in like they show what what happens if you're a small business owner. You're stuck buying purge insurance. And then these insurance companies raise the rates right like the day before the purge, and these small business owners can't afford the price hike. <laughs> um, it's extortion. Yeah, so like, like, like that's an interesting um, glimpse into this dystopian world. The good senator wins. She eliminates the purge. It becomes illegal, and things are supposed to go back to normal. And they do for like eight years? Something like that. Yeah, okay. Um, so hence the fourth purge movie was a prequel. It was the first purge. It was... Um, looking at how the new founding father set up this social experiment on Staten Island. And that movie gets a lot more into racism as one of the main um, subtexts. And in that case, the first purge, they're expecting that these um, uh, these people who are very low socioeconomic status, mostly uh, black and Hispanic neighborhoods, are going to massacre each other. And most of them don't. Like there are a couple troubled people who get violent, but most of them just want to have orgies and have street parties and do drugs. And it's not the the big ethnic cleansing that the new founding fathers wanted. <laughs> so they send in squads of mercenaries and white supremacist gangs to massacre a lot of people of color in that movie. And I feel like the, the themes about racism segue nicely into the new film which is heavily uh, about anti-immigrant sentiment and a lot more white nationalism. Again, things yeah. that we are seeing in the news a lot the mm-hmm. past few years. So very timely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And then, yes, that brings us to 2021 with The Forever Purge. Uh, again, another Purge film, as Erica said, focusing 
uh, with a lot of uh, anti-immigrant, you know, sentiment as subtext. Um, basically, it sounds, I would guess it sounds like it follows formula-wise the same sort of path as a lot of other Purge movies. Is that accurate to say for the most part other than the fact that they get the actual purge night itself out of the way very quickly in the film and then the the twist is which is clear from the trailer so it's not really a spoiler is uh that people keep on purging after the the stop alarm sounds after the 12-hour limit mm-hmm. and most of the people who want this forever purge movement are white supremacists they want america to be pure again whatever that means mm-hmm. Um, and that means targeting people with black and brown skin, people who are immigrants. Um, so there's there's like definitely a lot more subtext about not even a subtext. It's an overt text about racism in this. Mm-hmm. OK. And that we so during the film, we follow um, our, our characters. We have like a cast of like five, like a team of five for throughout most of it. Um, Adela and her husband uh, Juan are both immigrants from Mexico, uh, and Juan works on the farm of the Tuckers or the ranch, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Dylan and Cassidy, a a husband and pregnant wife, um, are our, you know, ranch owners, our higher socioeconomic status, are white, you know, um, cast members that are with us throughout most of the movie. Uh, as well as uh, Dylan's sister, Harper oh. Harper Tucker. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and she's with us throughout most of it as well as sort of a supporting cast member. And so throughout, you know, just a series of events, these five pretty much end up together to try and survive the purge and and find their way to safety. So yeah, it just it follows, you know, the the moments right after like people start to realize that the purge is still going on because that's a little bit of a slow burn you know mm-hmm. you're you're sort of lulled into a false sense of security for a moment as um, Adela returns to work and she sees that a lot of her coworkers are missing presumed to be killed in the purge um, but we we slowly sort of realize that uh, the purge is still happening out there through a series of events all these people get together and. Return to safety, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to open it up to you guys. Uh, let's hear about what you thought of the film. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add that you felt I missed in my synopsis? Uh, and then we can move on to spoiler territory. Um, it was helpful having all of that context, Erica, because I've always known the gist of these films. I've always thought like, oh, this is interesting that you know, there's this annual event and every movie we're kind of seeing it through a different lens with different people. And that's, that's a great way to world build. And in this one, we see several groups of people, you know, dealing with this um, event and the aftermath that just blows up with this, you know, extremist group that wants to make this last forever. So I, what I appreciated about the film is that uh, yes, it does feel very timely with all of the white nationalism stuff that you know we're always seeing in the news. Um, in a way, a lot of that stuff is very disgusting to watch. And I also was kind of appalled by how much of it was also kind of made me feel numb just because I've seen so much of it happen that it's like, yeah, I feel like that would happen in this world if this were allowed to happen. Like a lot of it didn't feel that 
that far from the truth if we were, you know, in this situation. Um, I really dug our, our two leads, Juan and Adela. Mm-hmm. I think they're very likable people. Uh, they're relatively grounded. You know, these characters are caricatures of like um, real people, but they felt relatively grounded. I rooted for them. I liked their I liked their relationship, and we slowly learned more about their background. I also really liked uh, some of the smaller performances, like uh, Caleb, who is kind of the head of the Tucker family on this ranch, um, played by Will Patton. Um, there's actually a scene with Caleb that's one of my favorite scenes. It's at the ranch where he gives this monologue uh, while some bad guys are trying to do their thing and he is uh, distracting them with his, this kind of grand speech. And I thought that was when the film was kind of the most Mm self-aware and it built tension really well because we saw what was going behind the scenes and we saw what the villains were only aware of. I thought that was a great scene. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's one that I've thought back to this past week uh, since seeing the film. I would add that even in that moment, we already know, what's going to happen as a result. And yet we're still on the edge of our seats exactly. a little bit. We're still kind of sweating, wondering, you know, exactly how is this going to play out or mm-hmm. what's going to be the aftermath? How are they going to get out of this situation? Um, so I appreciated that. I thought that built tension really well. Um, fortunately, I really don't think this is that great of a film. And I had a lot of negatives that I wrote down about it. So one thing I can't figure out is, is this supposed to be an action film or is it a horror film or does it not matter if it's kind of both? Um, but I, I, I couldn't really tell what it was trying to be uh, genre wise. At the end of the day, I would call it an action horror, mm-hmm. you know, just hyphenate it and, and call it good. Um, I found since it is, you know, a, a hybrid action film, I found a lot of the action to be unintelligible. A lot of the action scenes, I could not tell what was going on. A lot of them were cut together poorly, shot poorly. Um, You know, quick cuts and sequences would happen, and I wouldn't be sure which characters were part of which parts of the action. Um, So that that was kind of slapdash for me. You know, I know that, that, like I said, this is a kind of a, a caricature of our current situation, in the world, but it seemed like there were just tons of coincidences and contrivances with how characters meet each other, just a lot of convenient ways that characters run into each other and meet each other and have interactions that we can get into more of those in spoilers. Um, we talked about these forever purgers who want to keep this going. And I thought that at the beginning, when we're first introduced to that notion, when we're on the ranch, I thought that it was actually poorly set up because of the intentions of those ranchers didn't seem to match what the rest of the nation's forever purgers were trying to accomplish. And I thought that that muddled things a bit. Mm. I thought that the ranch forever purgers, um, they have this whole talk about like income inequality Mm -hmm. and like, you know, you're the rich people and all we do is work for dirt and stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's time for our uh, time for us to take our share And it's like, don't introduce that idea. I feel like a whole movie could be about that notion. It takes away from like the multinational stuff, the, um, you know, white supremacy stuff that this movie really gets on track with, with regard to its villains. Um, I was, I was going to say, if I may, I might counter just a little bit in that if we're, if this is in fact a caricature of, of our current situation, um, 
those those two topics are often conflated. Usually, you know, with with a, a an element of like disillusion, you know, in, incorrect perception, but those are often conflated. But I I agree that they did not connect those ideas together within the movie The Forever Purge. It, had they connected them, you know, more cohesively, I think mm-hmm. that would have made for an interesting, um, more consistent conflict. But yeah, I think they could have made a whole separate film about just these ranchers mm-hmm. um, that was kind of on a smaller scale, but still conveyed what they wanted and what the the ranching family wants and mm-hmm. how those things conflict. Um, I thought that there was a really promising aesthetic to um, this film. You know, like on the poster, we see kind of this post-apocalyptic cowboy rancher dude on a horse. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's so, that's so aesthetically really cool. And I thought that they kind of peaked with that look early on and then kind of abandoned it as we looked more uh, more broad at the whole country. Things seemed to go a little bit more stale. Um, and then just the heavy handedness with the social commentary. I just felt like a lot of that stuff was, um, just very blunt and not very subtle or nuanced in, in any interesting way. And maybe that's the design of this, this franchise. When you're looking at an actual action horror film franchise, that kind of comes with the territory. Um, but for me, it was a little bit of a distraction. Yeah, I am going to say I, I totally agree with you, although this film, the way they handled the social messaging was a lot more subtle than the third film, Election really? Year. OK, they scaled it way down. Okay. Actually, they were okay. yeah, extremely heavy handed in that. Yeah, because we <laughs> Stefan and I haven't seen the you know first four films, so I don't have that context or something to relate it to. So. That's interesting. That's, that's very interesting. But, um, I'm actually going to use that if you're done. Basically, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm actually going to use that to, to segue in, in some into some of my thoughts, and I'll, I'll let you close it off before we move into spoilers. Um, so, like Bo said, we hadn't seen uh, any of the other Purge movies. Um, and watching this, I found out that I didn't really, like, have the stomach for it. Um, so I, you know, I kind of, I went to a 10 PM or 10 30 PM showing. I expected to be the only one in the theater. Cause like I had talked to Bo and he had seen it the day before me, he was alone. I was like, kind I was kind of looking forward <laughs> to being alone in the theater. Um, but, but when I got there, I just like, I knew what was coming in the movie a little bit and just like being surrounded by other strangers. I didn't know in in a world that uh is obviously a little scary i felt just unsafe being in the theater not just because of covid but because you know yeah you don't know like if someone's going to send a message like you always think oh it's not going to happen here mm-hmm. but like you know and i know that that's totally an irrational feeling to have but and and i don't know that it's necessarily connected to just like the nature of the movie but like just being there in the theater with other people, you know, it in itself, like paired with the movie that it was, I was like, I was scared about my own environment. And then I was watching, you know, something that, you know, I put myself in the shoes of the characters and, and there's just immense amounts of, of death and just knowing that, you know, I would be unlikely to survive a purge. Um, so just like, I, I found that I might not even have the stomach to like, go back and see other ones, which is, you know, s- such a strange thing to be saying um, after, like, 
watching only slasher flicks for like a good five or six years of my whole (laughs) life. So, um, and during really formative years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like this was like between the ages of like nine and 13, like those were my favorite kinds of movies. But, um, I, I have a really hard time I, I find with like seemingly senseless violence. So, um, if I, if I look at it objectively, I was still impressed with what I saw. I agree that the stuff was heavy-handed, but I kind of like expected mm-hmm. that. I went into this expecting that, especially giving like some of the some of the background you gave us um, ahead of time when we decided to watch this movie. So yeah, I agree with that, and and I want to also like touch on some of the shots that Bo was talking about. There's one shot in particular that was a really long and continuous shot um, that I was impressed with the effort, but also uh, with that like because of the way the continuous shot was was framed you don't see a lot of the action that's happening like outside of our main characters there's a lot of like gunfire but you don't really get to see a lot of the targets mm-hmm. you don't get to see if they were threats or if they were you know perhaps also other escapees just trying to survive and so um that was a part that i felt was really ambitious but really th- fell Hmm. and I and I've thought about that specific you know scene quite a few times since then um but yeah otherwise uh it exceeded my expectations um but uh I did have a lot of trouble sleeping that night interesting it is whether you like it or don't like it it's kind of hard to deny that it is like a pretty heavily violent film Mm -hmm. you know it's and you know there's quite a bit of gore quite a lot of um kills that you see pretty directly you know i know i said the action is unintelligible but there are scenes where you know a guy gets shot in the head mm-hmm. you know on public television and it's like that comes out of nowhere um and an hour and a half two hours of that kind of builds up over yeah. time well erica i want to give it to you uh, before we move into spoiler territory your thoughts especially since you have the context of the full franchise Well, if I have one complaint about this film, it's that it wasn't violent enough. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) You had me for a second. I believed you. We're so new to you that uh, I thought for sure you were serious. Um, I I do enjoy a lot of violent films. Horror is my favorite genre. Um, Even so, even though I am kind of desensitized to a lot of film violence, I still find a lot of the purge. Uh, scenes in, in the entire franchise to be really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also had a hard time sleeping after watching it. I think it just got my adrenaline up there too much because I was just so invested in what was going to happen to the main characters. And uh, and there were there were some shocking moments in the film, too, that was kind of like, dang, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they yeah. really just showed that. <laughs> um, but yeah, even though um, you know, even though this series, like the whole franchise, can be kind of heavy-handed, both in terms of the violence and also how overt they are with the uh, the social commentary, I still appreciate that about them. Like I like the fact that there are things you can talk about how the, these films reflect our current society or just take current trends and take them to the nth degree. Yeah, because if I may, like generalize for a moment here. Um, you know, purge movies kind of like this tend to appeal to the people that might be focused on in in, ter- in the negative light in terms of like the social commentary. Again, that's generalizing like 
horror movies appeal to a lot of people, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure what the, the typical demographic for this franchise is. And I would kind of like to know that too, like which side of the political divide do most of them fall, uh, fall into. Mm -hmm. I would think though, that it's clear that the purge movies are anti purge and they're anti racist, but yeah, of course, but there always be some crossover viewers. Yeah. Is it holding up a mirror to the, Mm -hmm. to the people that were being critical of a lot of this film does feel like a revenge tale against you know like white supremacists a lot of it is like a lot of it are our characters who we are rooting for feel like they're in danger a lot of it also feels like our characters we're rooting for are like very powerful and this is just a revenge tale especially towards the end in my opinion Mm -hmm. so i think it kind of does both a little bit you know like kind of celebrating our characters and showing that they're you know the heroes that we should fight for while also making them um, victims Mm -hmm. at at times too, Mm -hmm. making them vulnerable. All right. Are there any other thoughts before we start to move into spoiler territory? Um, One thing I've noticed from marketing pieces and just, you know, like trailers and stuff is it seems like for this series of films, it's, it's typical to always show that shot of someone pulling a mask down over their face. (laughs) And when that moment happened in this film, it's like, Oh, I'm I'm part of it now. I I'm seeing that that scene is right here. When it happened, I'm like that. That's the purge look. I mm-hmm. I feel like is like that mask coming down in slow motion. You yeah, know, and right? also the cool variety of masks you see some of the characters have in this series. Yeah, <laughs> and even in this film, like um, early on, I feel like we get a lot of that variety um, with you know the official purge night, the the sanctions, you know, twelve mm-hmm. hours. Um, you get some like bunny masks, some yeah. deranged bunny masks, <laughs> and. Uh, the ranchers, the ranching group. Oh yeah, that was a. Cool I loved look. their design, mm-hmm, yeah. and that's what I was talking about with like the very promising aesthetic of the villains. I wish more of that had been included later. It's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up. When I was looking for social elements to post about Cinema Roundtable's return, uh, by the way, follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/CinemaRoundtable. Um, one of the first like results was like here are the Purge Halloween costume ideas. And uh-huh. so, like, they they have, like, a whole... They've essentially, like, trademarked a whole brand on, on like, a, this entire look. I, I've seen some of those at Spirit of Halloween last year. They did, like, the election year ones, like the Statue of Liberty with, uh, the, with the, the neon lights. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's, like, a... It's, like, steampunk, but for uh, violent murderers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, with that, we will throw it to spoiler territory. Could it really be that simple? Secret lies with Charlotte. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Those keys, Rose. You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? Charlotte Breen is people! The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. So, we're going to expand on our thoughts a little bit on the Forever Purge and include some spoilers uh, as well. So, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna leave it up to... Uh, Erica, if you want to throw it off, do you have any thoughts uh, that you didn't get to really talk about before the bumper, uh, including spoilers? Well, I kind of like this this theme that they keep going back to about you know, like who or what is a real American. 
um, like Adela's vision of the American dream is that it's a melting pot with all kinds of people and cultures, and you get to enjoy some of everything. That's what she loves about what she thinks American is, America is. But in contrast, you have these forever purgers who have this idea of racial and cultural purity that they um, they want to enforce violently. Uh, so that was uh, that was another interesting um, element I thought as far as the social part went. Um, also, once we get into the spoiler stuff, <laughs> I do like how uh, things turned out at the end and mm-hmm. kind of how it, it relates to the immigration debate. Yeah. So are you talking, since we are in spoilers, are you talking about specifically kind of the reversal of yes. all of the white people wanting to go <laughs> get, yeah, get across into the Mexico. border? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was the heavy hand in this I was mostly referring to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, yeah, you could talk it, more about that. It is, yeah, it is heavy handed. But uh, I, at the same time, I was um, kind of amused and entertained by that idea that like, so they're in El Paso, which is across the border from Juarez, the most violent city in North America. Um, and it's like, that's a safer place than El yeah. Paso. Yeah. Which I, I did kind of enjoy that, that idea, even though, yeah, it's way over the top. Um, I, uh, my master's degree was in forensic science and I spent a lot of time studying, um, Uh, missing persons cases in Juarez and like the series of serial killings and sexual homicides that happened there. So I, I kind of, uh, I, I liked that thought experiment though of America becoming so bad and violent that Juarez seems like a nice place Mm -hmm. by comparison. Yeah, I, I agree. Like sure. Heavy handed, but like, I also, you know, I, I loved the, the thought that, um, just, America was just this like, you know, such this dispassionate place that, you know, for for years we've been focusing on closing down the border, keeping Mm -hmm. the border shut, you know, just like blocking off all these people, despite, you know, being the greatest country on earth and having all of this uh, uh, just like immense prosperity that, uh, you know, could go further. But, you know, just this focus on closing the border. And then these other countries that don't, you know, boast the same things are just, like, welcoming to, you know, all these Americans that, you know, may or may not actually be perders trying to sneak into another place. Like, mm-hmm. it's, you know. I want to know what the Canada situation looked like. I know yeah, they, they were never I know it. they were nowhere near there. <laughs> they would have no reason. But it's like. There's a whole story that happened up there too. Yeah. You know, I, I want to see that one. It'll too. be the purge part six. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is apparently the final film, right? That's what they've well, said. They keep saying that. They keep. So have they said that in other films? I think uh, they set it up earlier. So sorry, election year would be the last one. Oh, okay. okay. So we the book isn't closed yet necessarily because <laughs> they keep saying like, oh, this is the final one, and it's called you know the Forever Purge. It's kind of a fitting title. But at the end, they really do kind of leave it open because they talk about how they summarize this conflict of like, you know, people are starting to rise up against the forever purgers. And it's kind of that news mm-hmm. um, montage. And then it just kind of goes to credits. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how they would handle the next one and what themes they would explore. And maybe it's dependent on what happens in the world in the next few years, mm-hmm. too. So fun trivia. I, I can't remember if it was election year or the first purge, but the new founding fathers had their, their 
election slogan was Keep America Great. And then the Trump campaign used that after the film came out. It wasn't that the film stole it from the Trump campaign. It was the other That's way around. Crazy. Are you serious? Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> and a lot of the opposite happens in this film. A lot of like mm-hmm. references to the Trump administration, like when we meet the alpha leader of the Forever Purgers or the Purge Purification Force, which I want to get into that a little bit, oh, yeah. <laughs> how confusing that is, because I, I genuinely am confused with the structure and their motivations and like how they're organized. Um, but when we get to that scene, um, another contrivance where we run into the alpha leader, you know, our half of our team in um, El Paso, they've been split in half. Mm-hmm. We run into the alpha leader. We meet the guy who's calling the shots, essentially, mm-hmm. at least in El Paso. I don't know how how wide his reach is. And he is, if you noticed, he does it like 10 times. He calls his wife or his significant other mother. Yeah. Uh-huh. And apparently that's a reference to Mike Pence um, because uh-huh. Mike Pence is known for calling his wife mother. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it might be a regional thing or something that they just do in their family, but something that um, other politicians picked up on when he would have people over to his house for like dinner parties and they found it very odd. Mm-hmm. And just one of the one of the overt examples of like, you know what, we're we're just gonna show you that these are the people we're making fun of and that we're we're uh you know taking down here. Yeah. I I had heard of, you know, people doing that, calling their their spouse mother. I I had heard of that before. Okay. Mike Pence was in the picture. Okay, I, I um, actually looked it up, and that's ugh. what one person's theory was. Yeah. is like, I oh, mean, that's I'm, a reference to Mike Pence. I'm, so. I'm sure that you know that's what everyone picks up on. So, like, why include it if that wasn't your goal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So. And they they did it a lot in like that five minute scene. He's yeah, doing it like every sentence, <laughs> like to the point where it's distracting. Um. So interesting. Since you're you're bringing up the um the campaign slogan. When I was pulling up the first purge on Rotten Tomatoes here during the the conversation, uh, one of their promotional images is of the the red baseball cap, but it says the first purge. So I think that was uh, that was kind of like a, a response to, you know, the Trump campaign taking that that campaign slogan. Um, so I, I think that's interesting because I saw it there. And I'm like, oh, it's just a, you know, yeah. recognizable icon, but. Uh, it, it has a deeper meaning now, I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so when when I was talking about um, that, that continuous shot, that was uh, while they were on their way to the Mexican border. Um, they had just gotten out of their conflict, I think, with the alpha leader, um, and they were trying to head to a theater or something. It might have been the other way around. Oh, I know what you're talking about now, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was when they were on their way to the theater, and it, it was just this like really... Can, you know, this long continuous shot, which I noticed maybe about a minute and a half in, I'm like, oh, they haven't cut away yet. Yeah, um, that was artful. And we see a lot of action happening in the background. It definitely feels like a city of people going through a conflict. It's not just our characters. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the the downside of that is that the characters are facing the camera. So you don't see what the characters are seeing. You just see that they are shooting off to the side or maybe, you know at like a, a 10 degree angle away That's from right. the camera. That's right. So like, you know, in that moment I was thinking about there's a lot of people running away. What if some of these people running away have weapons or, you know, are innocent, you know, fleeing people being shot by our main cast. And that was part of the unintelligible mm-hmm. action I was talking about. It was right around that scene where there was um, a very 
a more intense action scene that wasn't part of that long take where I just, a lot of stuff happened. It was all in shadows and stuff. A lot of quick cuts. Couldn't tell what happened really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was able to pick up on things, but it wasn't immediately clear. And that's the craziness of action sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I found it um, a little frustrating. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else anyone wants to add? Uh, So a couple things. Um, The psychological uh, theory behind this, that by giving people this chance to purge or act out violently, that then that keeps crime down the rest of the year and there are all these benefits, supposedly. So in my uh, psychology and behavioral science training, um, there are numerous studies that say the opposite happens. So this idea that there would be a forever purge, that people will just get more and more angry and more violent would actually be the case. Uh, people get more angry and aggressive if they are given the chance to act out, even if it's on, uh, you know, an inanimate object, mm-hmm. for instance. So, okay. um, but that uh, that makes sense for this franchise because the new founding fathers don't really want people to get get rid of their negative emotions or their aggression. They just want to get rid of poor people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if they had their way, it would happen more. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I also found uh, some commentary online through the YouTube channel Wisecrack. Um, They looked at religious themes in the series. I never noticed before that the purge happens during spring equinox. Oh. Oh. Which uh, makes sense because you have like the 12 continuous hours of nighttime. That's like when night and day are equal. But also in in a lot of cultures and religions, that's a time of renewal and they – um, they have these, like the, the official flower of the purge. It's like this, I can't remember the name of the flower, but it's a blue flower that's associated with baptism and purification. Interesting. Oh, wow. So that's something I learned that I didn't pick up on just from watching it. Yeah. Cause like, why not the autumnal equinox? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. That's fascinating. And when they say like, uh, you know, a nation reborn, blah, blah, blessed be the new founding father. So it's like, it's a, a uh, rebirth symbolism that they're renewing the country by purging interesting i actually was thinking about the title of this film the forever purge and to me it's a little bit of a i'm, I'm sorry i'm being so negative but <laughs> um i i genuinely did experience this after i came home from the movie my wife was like what movie did you see and for a good like 15 seconds i actually could not remember the name of this film because i think it's a little clumsy the forever purge mm-hmm. um which is used as a line in the film to be mm-hmm. fair like one of when she gets trapped in that cage thing, I believe one of the guys in the rabbit mm. mask says, this is the forever purge. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, oh, they name dropped the film. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking like, why not call it the everlasting purge? Or true. Um, one title I thought of was the purge purification. So the purge mm. colon purification mm. as they're trying to purify the country or something. And maybe that gives away too much too early maybe yeah yeah maybe it maybe it <laughs> spoils the the themes there but. when when you uh when you were talking to me on Tuesday during our radio show you were like did you did you see the forever after purge yet <laughs> <laughs> and i laughed and you were generally like what like, what did i say it <laughs> it's I not thought, comedy Stefan. i thought yeah i thought i thought he was joking but i like in that moment i'm like oh Yes. Maybe I don't know the name of the movie. <laughs> no, yeah, the never-ending purge. <laughs> yeah, so just a little note there. Um, I there's the and help me remember this. This is genuinely a question. So we have the forever purgers, and we get introduced when they have that initial, you know, twelve-hour purge when um, uh, Adela is at that 
kind of a, a compound that's guarded, mm-hmm. you know, for the whole night, um, we get introduced to the purge purification force. Mm-hmm. They're driving around and they've got the broadcasts, you know, message that tells everybody exactly what they're doing. Um, so is like the alpha leader, is he tied to those people? Is are are all those is this whole movement the purge purification force? Or is this whole movement kind of like an idea that starts small and spreads like wildfire? I'm I'm just kind of confused about um the organization of of these forever purgers. How organized are they? Because they seem very organized. You know, they overwhelm the military. Mm-hmm. They overwhelm, you know, police and everything. It's just, I, I found that fascinating is that uh, they came out of nowhere, complete surprise to the entire nation, so organized that they can overwhelm the military when they come to reinforce El Paso. I know I'm thinking about this way too much, but I find it interesting. Curious if you had any thoughts about like, their organization or, or their structure. Well, they need another film to explain that because they didn't explain it well enough. I, I guess so. And I, I was know. thinking like, I don't know if they could overwhelm you know, the military near El Paso. Like there's a big military base there. You know? Right. Yeah. That's uh, what I was so thinking. it's like, uh, and also that, you know, like this forever purge thing trended on social media as a hashtag. And I thought, uh, I don't know if this film was already completed before the January 6th Capitol uh, riot. Um, but, yeah, like there were uh, hashtags on social media about that with especially QAnon people talking about the storm is here. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, yeah. they were not as well organized <laughs> yeah. as the people in this movie. <laughs> right. I think I think if I if I look at it like um I think it's sort of like a mirror representation in the in the idea that there are so many like different fringe groups that aren't centralized and that sort of points to the the you know appearance of multiple groups disorganization just like and why the the mm-hmm. ranch group that we see first you know why they're kind of talking about different stuff they're talking about mm-hmm. like income inequality yeah yeah they're all kind of attaching their own minds to this movement right they are so disparate yeah, yeah. And, and it's you know just again like disillusionment or like you know just just incorrect ideals and and projecting yourself onto them i think that's um, fair think and that's and fair. that's sort of like how i saw it you know, just all these different, different, because we have like three or four really, really prominent groups in the United States right now. And they're not all like centralized or under the same banner or have mm-hmm. the exact same ideals, but they all tie themselves to the same people, yeah. essentially. I, I think it would have been interesting to have focused and we still could have um, made their whole intentions about being against immigrants and being about white nationalism. It could have carried the same, you know, themes and messages, um, but have the story focused on the ranchers. You know, Mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be on the scale of like the first purge movie Mm -hmm. where we're just looking at kind of one location, um, kind of that, that horror trope of being Mm -hmm. stuck in a room or stuck on a ranch. You know, you don't really leave that spot. Um, I think that would have been an interesting place to take this movie and would have bookended the series if they really are ending here. I feel like they did do that a little bit just by um, showing that the wealthy rancher family and their whole lockdown system, it kind of called back to the first film and how that family locks down because they don't participate in the purge, but they're trying to stay safe. And then contrasting that with um, the people who have to have this very uncomfortable refuge space and they wait that out. Um, And then 
closer to the end of the film when they're in El Paso and everything's pure chaos. That's a lot like Anarchy. You have this very wide scale uh, action. Okay. Interesting. So, so, there's, so there's a lot of like uh, thematic callbacks mm-hmm. to previous yeah. films. Mm-hmm. It's a Purge Greatest Hits album. Yeah, kind of, kind of. One thing it didn't have, though, is they didn't, uh, unless I missed something, they didn't have surviving characters from any of the previous films show up. Is, so. is that something that they have done in previous films where you get to see like a familiar character? Yeah, um, like not to the point where you need to watch them in order or anything like that, but um, the homeless man from the first film shows up again in the second film. They give him a name, Dante, and he's part of a resistance group. Okay. And then he shows up again in the third film and he um, helps save the senator from assassin. The, the, yeah, the senator who's running for president from assassination. Okay. Um, and there's a, an important character in the second film who also shows up in the third film as her bodyguard. So there's like a little, a little overlap, but I didn't recognize any common characters, uh, like in, uh, the first purge or in forever purge. Okay, cool. Yeah. I do like when, when those little Easter eggs show up in, mm-hmm. in movies like that. All right. Well, if there are no more closing thoughts, I think we're at a good place in our time to end the recording here. I want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, to this episode of Cinema Roundtable. We will be back next month with the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Old. So uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Until then, everyone, see you at the movies. This episode was recorded at the studios of KZUM 89.3 FM in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find out more about KZUM and listen to more episodes of Cinema Roundtable by visiting kzum.org. Our theme music was composed by Joshua Spaulding.